Section 11 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 11, American Founders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Alexander Hamilton, Part 2. But before Hamilton could be of signal service to the country as an organizer and legislator, it was necessary to have a national government which the country would accept, and which would be lasting and efficient. There was a political chaos for years after the war. Congress had no generally recognized authority. It was merely a board of delegates, whose decisions were disregarded, representing a league of states, not an independent authority. There was no chief executive officer, no court of national judges, no defined legislature. We were a league of emancipated colonies drifting into anarchy. There was really no central government, only an autonomy of states like the ancient Grecian republics, and the lesser states were jealous of the greater. The great questions pertaining to slavery were unsettled, how far it should extend, and how far it could be interfered with. We had ships in commerce, but no commercial treaties with other nations. We imported goods and merchandise, but there were no laws of tariff or of revenue. If one state came into collision with another state, there was no tribunal to settle the difficulty. No particular industries were protected. Of all things, the most needed was a national government superior to state governments, taking into its own hands exclusively the army and navy, tariffs, revenues, the post office, the regulation of commerce, and intercourse with foreign states. Oh, what times those were! What need of statesmanship and patriotism and wisdom! I have alluded to various evils of the day. I will not repeat them. Why, our condition at the end of the War of the Rebellion, when we had a national debt of three thousand millions, and general derangement and demoralization, was an elysium compared with that of our fathers at the close of the Revolutionary War. No central power, no constitution, no government, with poverty, agricultural distress, and uncertainty, and the prostration of all business. No national credit, no national éclat, a mass of rude, unconnected, and anarchic forces threatening to engulf us in worse evils than those from which we had fled. The thinking and sober men of the country were at last aroused, and the conviction became general that the Confederacy was unable to cope with the difficulties which arose on every side. So, through the influence of Hamilton, a convention of five states assembled at Annapolis to provide a remedy for the public evils. But it did not fully represent the varied opinions and interests of the whole country. All it could do was to prepare the way for a general convention of states, and twelve states sent delegates to Philadelphia, who met in the year 1787. The great public career of Hamilton began as a delegate from the state of New York to this illustrious assembly. He was not the most distinguished member, for he was still a young man, nor the most popular, for he had too much respect for the British Constitution, and was too aristocratic in his sympathies, and perhaps in his manners, to be a favorite but he was probably the ablest man of the convention, the most original and creative in his genius, the most comprehensive and far-seeing in his views, a man who inspired confidence and respect for his integrity and patriotism, combining intellectual with moral force. He would have been a great man in any age or country, or in any legislative assembly, a man who had great influence over superior minds, as he had over that of Washington, whose confidence he had from first to last. I am inclined to think that no such an assembly of statesmen has since been seen in this country as that which met to give a constitution to the American Republic. Of course, I cannot enumerate all the distinguished men. They were all distinguished, men of experience, patriotism, and enlightened minds. 
there were fifty-four of these illustrious men picked men of the land of whom the nation was proud franklin now in his eightieth year was the nestor of the assembly covered with honors from home and abroad for his science and his political experience and sagacity a man who received more flattering attentions in france than any american who ever visited it one of the great savants of the age dignified affable courteous whom everybody admired and honored washington too was there the ulysses of the war brave in battle and wise in counsel of transcendent dignity of character whose influence was patriarchal the synonym of moral greatness to be revered through all ages and countries a truly immortal man whose fame has been steadily increasing adams jefferson and jay three very great lights were absent on missions to europe but rufus king roger sherman oliver ellsworth livingston dickinson rutledge randolph pinckney madison were men of great ability and reputation independent in their views but all disposed to unite in the common good some had been delegates to the stamp act congress of seventeen sixty five some members of the continental congress of seventeen seventy four some signers of the declaration of independence there were no political partisans then as we now understand the word for the division lines of parties were not then drawn all were animated with the desire of conciliation and union all felt the necessity of concessions they differed in their opinions as to state rights representation and slavery some were more democratic some more aristocratic than the majority but all were united in maintaining the independence of the country and in distrust of monarchies it is impossible within my narrow limits to describe the deliberations of these patriots until their work was consummated in the glorious constitution which is our marvel and our pride the discussions first turned on the respective powers to be exercised by the executive judicial and legislative branches of the proposed central government and the duration of the terms of service hamilton's views favored a more efficient executive than was popular with the states or delegates but it cannot be doubted that his powerful arguments and clear enunciation of fundamental principles of government had great weight with men more eager for truth than victory there were animated discussions as to the ratio of representation and the equality of the states which gave rise to the political parties which first divided the nation and which were allied with those serious questions pertaining to state rights which gave rise in part to our late war but the root of the dissensions and the subject of most animated debates was slavery that awful curse and difficult question which was not settled until the sword finally cut that gordian knot but so far as compromises could settle the question they were made in the spirit of patriotism not on principles of abstract justice but of expediency and common sense it was evident from the first that there could be no federal united government no nation only a league of states unless compromises were made in reference to slavery whose evils were as apparent then as they were afterwards for the sake of nationality and union and peace slavery was tolerated by the constitution to some this may appear to have been a grave error but to the makers of the constitution it seemed to be a less evil to tolerate slavery than have no constitution at all which would unite all the states harmony and national unity seemed to be the paramount consideration so a compromise was made we are apt to forget how great institutions are often based on compromise not a mean and craven sentiment as some think but a spirit of conciliation and magnanimity without which there can be no union or stability take the english church which has survived the revolutions of human thought for three centuries 
which has been a great bulwark against infidelity and has proved itself to be dear to the heart of the nation and the source of boundless blessings and proud recollections it was a compromise halfway indeed between rome and geneva but nevertheless a great and beneficent organization on the whole take the english constitution itself one of the grandest triumphs of human reason and experience it was only gradually formed by a series of bloodless concessions take the roman constitution under which the whole civilized world was brought into allegiance it was a series of concessions granted by the aristocratic classes most revolutions and wars end in compromise after the means of fighting are expended most governments are based on expediency rather than abstract principles the actions of governments are necessarily expedients the wisest policy in view of all the circumstances even such an uncompromising logician as st paul accepted some customs which we think were antagonistic to the spirit of his general doctrines he was a great temperance man but recommended a little wine to timothy for the stomach's sake and moses too the great founder of the jewish polity permitted polygamy because of the hardness of men's hearts so the fathers of the constitution preferred a constitution with slavery to no constitution at all had each of those illustrious men persisted in his own views we should have had only an autonomy of states instead of the glorious union which in spite of storms stands unshaken today i cannot dwell on those protracted debates which lasted four months or on the minor questions which demanded attention all centering in the great question whether the government should be federative or national but the ablest debater of the convention was hamilton and his speeches were impressive and convincing he endeavored to impress upon the minds of the members that liberty was found neither in the rule of a few aristocrats nor in extreme democracy that democracies had proved more short-lived than aristocracies as illustrated in greece rome and england he showed that extreme democracies especially in cities would be governed by demagogues that universal suffrage was a dangerous experiment when the people had neither intelligence nor virtue that no government could last which was not just and enlightened that all governments should be administered by men of experience and integrity that any central government should have complete control over commerce tariffs revenues post offices patents foreign relations the army and navy peace or war and that in all these functions of national interest the central government should be independent of state legislatures so that the state and national legislatures should not clash many of his views were not adopted but it is remarkable the subsequent changes and modifications of the constitution have been in the direction of his policy that wars and great necessities have gradually brought about what he advocated with so much calmness and wisdom guizot asserts that he must ever be classed among the men who have best understood the vital principles and elemental conditions of government and that there is not in the constitution of the united states an element of order or force or duration which he did not powerfully contribute to secure this is the tribute of that great and learned statesman and historian to the genius and services of hamilton what an exalted praise to be the maker of a constitution requires the highest maturity of reason it was the peculiar glory of moses the ablest man ever born among the jews and the greatest benefactor his nation ever had how much prouder the fame of a beneficent and enlightened legislator than that of a conqueror the code which napoleon gave to france partially rescues his name from the infamy that his injuries inflicted on mankind who are the greatest men of the present day and the most beneficent such men as gladstone and bright who are seeking by wise legislation to remove or ameliorate the evils of centuries of injustice 
who have earned the proudest national fame in the history of america since this constitution was made such men as webster clay seward sumner who devoted their genius to the elucidation of fundamental principles of government and political economy the sphere of a great lawyer may bring more personal gains but it is comparatively narrow to that of a legislator who originates important measures for the relief or prosperity of a whole country the constitution when completed was not altogether such as hamilton would have made but he accepted it cordially as the best which could be had it was not perfect but probably the best ever devised by human genius with its checks and balances like one of those rocking stones reared by the druids as winthrop beautifully said which the finger of a child may vibrate to its centre yet which the might of an army could not move from its place the next thing to be done was to secure its ratification by the several states a more difficult thing than at first sight would be supposed for the state legislatures were mainly composed of mere politicians without experience or broad views and animated by popular passions so the states were tardy in accepting it especially the larger ones like virginia new york and massachusetts and it may reasonably be doubted whether it would have been accepted at all had it not been for the able papers which hamilton madison and jay wrote and published in a leading new york paper essays which go under the name of the federalist long a textbook in our colleges which is the best interpreter of the constitution itself it is everywhere quoted and if those able papers may have been surpassed in eloquence by some of the speeches of our political orators they have never been equaled in calm reasoning they appealed to the intelligence of the age an age which loved to read butler's analogy and edwards on the will an age not yet engrossed in business and pleasure when people had time to ponder on what is profound and lofty an age not so brilliant as our own in mechanical inventions and scientific researches but more contemplative and more impressible by grand sentiments i do not say that the former times were better than these as old men have talked for two thousand years for those times were hard and the struggles of life were great without facilities of travel without luxuries without even comforts as they seem to us but there was doubtless then a loftier spiritual life and fewer distractions in the pursuit of solid knowledge people could then live in the country all the year round without complaint or that restless craving for novelties which demoralizes and undermines the moral health hamilton wrote sixty-three of the eighty-five more than half of these celebrated papers which had a great influence on public opinion clear logical concise masterly in statement and in the elucidation of fundamental principles of government probably no series of political essays has done so much to mold the opinions of american statesmen as those of the federalists a thesaurus of political wisdom as much admired in europe as in america it was translated into most of the european languages and in france placed side by side with montesquieu's spirit of laws ingenious and ability it was not written for money or fame but from patriotism to enlighten the minds of the people and prepare them for the reception of the constitution in this great work hamilton rendered a mighty service to his country nothing but the conclusive arguments which he made assisted by jay and madison aroused the people fully to a sense of the danger attending an imperfect union of states by the efforts of hamilton outside the convention more even than in the convention the constitution was finally adopted first by delaware and last by rhode island in seventeen ninety and then only by one majority in the legislature so difficult was the work of construction we forget the obstacles and the anxieties and labors of our early statesmen in the enjoyment of our present liberties but the public services of hamilton do not end here 
to him preeminently belongs the glory of restoring or creating our national credit of relieving universal financial embarrassments the constitution was the work of many men our financial system was the work of one who worked alone as michelangelo worked on the ceiling of the sistine chapel when washington became president he at once made choice of hamilton as his secretary of the treasury at the recommendation of robert morris the financier of the revolution who not only acknowledged his own obligations to him but declared that he was the only man in the united states who could settle the difficulty about the public debt in finance hamilton it is generally conceded had an original and creative genius he smote the rock of the national resources said webster and abundant streams of revenue gushed forth he touched the dead corpse of the public credit and it sprang upon its feet the fabled birth of minerva from the brain of jupiter was hardly more sudden than the financial system of the united states as it burst from the conception of alexander hamilton when he assumed the office of secretary of the treasury there were five forms of public indebtedness for which he was required to provide the foreign debt debts of the government to states the army debt the debt for supplies in the various departments during the war and the old continental issues there was no question about the foreign debt the assumption of the state's debts incurred for the war was identical with the debts of the union since they were incurred for the same object in fact all the various obligations had to be discharged and there was neither money nor credit hamilton proposed a foreign loan to be raised in europe but the old financiers had sought foreign loans and failed how was the new congress likely to succeed any better only by creating confidence making it certain that the interest of the loan would be paid and paid in specie in other words they were to raise a revenue to pay this interest the simple thing that old congress had not thought of or had neglected or found impracticable and how should the required revenue be raised direct taxation was odious and unreliable hamilton would raise it by duties on imports but how was an impoverished country to raise money to pay the duties when there was no money how was the dead corpse to be revived he would develop the various industries of the nation all in their infancy by protecting them so that the merchants and the manufacturers could compete with foreigners so that foreign goods could be brought to our seaports in our own ships and our own raw materials exchanged for articles we could not produce ourselves and be subject to duties chiefly on articles of luxury which some were rich enough to pay for and he would offer inducements for foreigners to settle in the country by the sale of public lands at a nominal sum men who had a little money and not absolute paupers men who could part with their superfluities for either goods manufactured or imported and especially for some things they must have on which light duties would be imposed like tea and coffee and heavy duties for things which the rich would have like broadcloths wines brandies silks and carpets thus a revenue could be raised more than sufficient to pay the interest on the debt he made this so clear by his luminous statements going into all details that confidence gradually was established both as to our ability and also our honesty and money flowed in easily and plentifully from europe since foreigners felt certain that the interest on their loans would be paid thus in all his demonstrations he appealed to common sense not theories he took into consideration the necessities of his own country not the interests of other countries he would legislate for america not universal humanity the one great national necessity was protection and this he made as clear as the light of the sun one of our errors said he is that of judging things by abstract calculations which though geometrically true are practically false 
it was clear that the government must have a revenue and that the revenue could only be raised by direct or indirect taxation and he preferred under the circumstances of the country indirect taxes which the people did not feel and were not compelled to pay unless they liked for the poor were not compelled to buy foreign imports but if they bought them they must pay a tax to government and he based his calculations that people could afford to purchase foreign articles of necessity and luxury on the enormous resources of the country then undeveloped indeed but which would be developed by increasing settlements increasing industries and increasing exports and his predictions were soon fulfilled in a few years the debt disappeared altogether or was felt to be no burden the country grew rich as its industries were developed and its industries were developed by protection end of section eleven